This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Languages play a crucial role in the daily lives of people, not only as a tool for communication, education, social integration, and development, but also as a repository for each person's unique identity, cultural history, traditions, and memory. Despite their immense value, languages around the world continue to disappear at an alarming rate. My guest today is Rebecca Chartrand. Rebecca is the president and CEO of Indigenous Strategy, but she has a very interesting background, both professionally and in the community. And I'm going to touch on a couple of them, Rebecca, and then we're getting into this conversation. But first and foremost, I know that you're a very proud Anishinaabe First Nations woman from Treaty 4 territory in Manitoba. And I'm going to tell you that I'm from Treaty 4 in Saskatchewan, Punishai, Saskatchewan. So we've got something in common. I know that you carry a strong sense of pride in your identity and you're regarded for your integrity, courage, voice, and charismatic presence. I know that you've worked to advance Indigenous achievement by bridging between diverse communities using reconciliation, anti-racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and Indigenous and multicultural education framework. You have a strong, strong worth ethic, and your leadership style is clearly informed by Indigenous ways of teaching, learning, leading, which orient towards holistic perspectives, varying contributions from all that are paddling the same canoe towards common goals. I love that. I know that you have done work professionally, Rebecca, for 25 years, experience working in K-12, post-secondary education, and the arts. You were a former vice president of Inspire, which was a national charity that set a record in 2021, awarding some $20 million in bursaries and scholarships to students. You were an executive director at Red River College, where there you created seven new programs while securing $1.4 million in new funding and created two new student support units. You know, your professional part is you're also behind the development of the Ojibwe Bilingual School that opened in 2016. This is the first of its kind in Manitoba, a school that allows students to choose an English or Ojibwe program route to a dual track school. Got to talk about that. But what I love too, you know, is that you're into the community, Rebecca, in a big way. So a board member of the Health Sciences Center Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba, the National Museum of Nature. Also, you are an Indigenous Education Advisory Council of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And you received a Canadian Aboriginal Music Award in 20 or 2000. I want to talk about that. But I just learned that you knew how to box. So I want to be careful <laughs> how we sort of have this whole interview. But Rebecca Chartrand, welcome to Humans on Rights. Well, thank you for having me, Stuart. I'm really happy to be here. I'd like to introduce myself in my language. So I basically said that my roots are from Pine Creek, Duck Bay and Volgar, and I'm living here in Winnipeg, which is more of like this urban local area here, Utenang. 
So, Rebecca, I mean, we want to talk about, you know, the fact that March 31st is recognized as Indigenous Language Days. And I know you're doing a lot on Indigenous languages. But before we get to this incredible background that you have, you say you were born in on the Manitoba side of Treaty 4. I'm on the Saskatchewan side. Just take us through how it is that you arrived to be the professional you are today. Where did you do some of your schooling? And where did you maybe realize that you were being taught in a language that might not have been as familiar to you as uh, as a younger person? Right. Yeah. So I grew up in Treaty 1 territory here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, predominantly in the north end of Winnipeg. So I went to, um, you know, the what was considered like the indigenous schools like, you know, Aberdeen and then later Children of the Earth. So I graduated from Children of the Earth High School. And when I think about language, you know, both of my parents are fluent speakers. I am not a fluent speaker. You know, I was the driver behind getting up the Ojibwe Bilingual School here in Winnipeg. Um, it opened up in 2016 with the first three grades, so it was kindergarten to grade three. Very proud of that. And then also went on to create an Ojibwe certificate program at Red River College. So it was a one-year program teaching people how to use the double vowel system when they're reading and writing in the language. And so that was a very unique project as well, but one that was necessary because, you know, we had these language programs that were popping up in the city and we are an oral culture. So we didn't necessarily have a written language similar to to the way that we learn in the school system. So that's where the double vowel system was created. Um, We did have syllabics. That is a written language, but it's not the language. It's, it's not the uh, the form in which we learn in, in public education. So I'm really proud of these initiatives. I do speak a little bit of Ojibwe, but I'm not fluent in it. And yeah, so I have some work to do on that front. Well, I think we all do. And 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 one of the reasons that you're on this uh, on this episode is to talk about the importance of languages, particularly from an indigenous perspective. But can I just make sure that I've got something accurate, Rebecca? I mean, you're are you you live in Treaty One territory, which I do also. But I just want to make sure I'm accurate. Were you born in Treaty Four and the Manitoba side of Treaty Four? No, I was born here in Winnipeg, okay. but that's my home community. So that's where I have my um, treaty status is with Pine Creek First Nation. So that's located in Treaty Four. Yeah. Part of the interesting part about this, Rebecca, is that. You know, that that treaty does sort of cross both Manitoba and Saskatchewan. That's why when I saw the year Treaty 4, I thought, wait a minute, Manitoba. But, you know, so I'm I'm from Punishai, Saskatchewan. And the uh, Gordon Reserve 86, I think it was referred to Gordon 86, was the kind of the home reserve there. So interesting that, that you know, just an understanding of the importance of treaties. So, Rebecca, when you were going through school, you know, what were your sort of, you know, we all as, you know, kind of when we get into grade school, intermediate school, grade 9, 10, 11, 12, you start to think about what you would like to do, you know, with your career or what really interests you. What were you most interested in in that particular time in your life? Oh, that's, an, that's a really good question. <laughs> because to be honest, I had no aspirations. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, in high school. And in fact, I had dropped out because I wanted to work. I guess when I look back, I don't feel that I was being challenged in ways that were, I guess, purposeful for me. So I dropped out. I was working at Video 1001. But then Children of the Earth had opened up. Children of the Earth was the first Indigenous high school in Canada. And so I gravitated back to, to high school to finish my grade 12 because, you know, there, this this was interesting. It was something that was reflecting who I was. 
as, you know, an Indigenous woman growing up in North End. But when I think about what was really motivating me, you know, in terms of my future, I think it was the social justice issues that I was dealing with living in the inner city. For example, one of my girlfriends was murdered in 1991. Her name was Glenda Morisot. She's part of the missing and murdered Indigenous women within this area. I was so enraged when that had happened, because I remember reading something in the sun that there was speculation that maybe she was a prostitute. And why? Because she was Indigenous, female, young, and then, you know, going home late at night from a party. So, you know, being one of her closest friends, I was just outraged and just felt like, okay, so what do we do about this? Well, I had joined um, Red Roots Theatre at the time, and we created this play called Those Damn Squaws. The play was to address the issue of racism, exploitation, and violence against Indigenous women. And this play, we created it as as young youth that were living in the North End, dealing with these issues, and uh, needed to say something about it. So most of the work that I have done over the years has really been purpose-driven in terms of just needing an outlet to deal with the challenges, you know, that we were living with growing up in Winnipeg's inner city. So I got into theater for a while. After that, I did some other plays with the Waskin Theater. We did some plays that addressed the issue of suicide in our communities. When I graduated from Children of the Earth, I graduated with the Governor General Award, and I also graduated with a TD scholarship. You know, I, I kept writing about all of these issues in the North End. So we created a newspaper, a newsletter for the school to, you know, really try and amplify these issues that were happening. And then I was, you know, I was given a job at uh, TD Bank after that because of the scholarship that I won. I was hired under employment equity, which was great. I learned a lot about banking and about just financial literacy, which was fantastic. But when I went back to school, I took education. I um, majored in theater and history and uh, one credit short from psychology as well. So so these are the things that, that have motivated me. I traveled up north working on some of the fishing lodges. You know, when tourists come in from the States, they want to go fishing, hunting. So I did a lot of that. And so I guess at an early age, I just knew I wanted to do something. I just didn't know what. And I think the banking experience really helped. But I realized that that wasn't for me. And I have to say, but it was definitely a really important learning experience because being hired under employment equity at the time, you know, it was a huge win that, you know, they're looking to diversify their workforce. But I don't believe that they were ready to receive my presence. <laughs> and that being, you know, and, and it's fair because when I think about the dynamics at the time, you know, there was only three full-time jobs. The rest were all part-time. Here I am fresh out of high school, no banking experience, getting a full-time job. Other people are fighting to get full-time jobs you know, but it's just not happening. So you can imagine the type of um, tension that would create for someone who's young and fresh out of high school. And the only reason why they're hired is because they're Indigenous. So, yeah. So, so I think it's even those types of experiences that kind of made me go, and I couldn't articulate it at the time, but it kind of made me go like, okay, we need to do something about this because all of this does not feel good. So I think those are the motivators for me is just always trying to go, okay, you know, we need to, we need to increase our voice. We need to increase our presence. We need to create spaces that are safe and nurturing for us, especially for our young people, if we're going to get anywhere, 
you know, if we're going to get out of, you know, what this is for us. And a lot of times it's the intergenerational trauma. Yeah. 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 So Rebecca, just uh, if you can share your thoughts, for example, the, 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 you know, this isn't to be a criticism. It's really to try to learn from the process. So, you know, the TD bank looks at you and gives you a scholarship. You, you have the chance to go and work full-time there, as you say. And, you know, at that point, there's a lot of people that would be looking at you saying, well, there's only one reason that she's here. It's because she's an indigenous woman. Forgetting the fact that are you qualified? You have the experience. I, you know, all of those things get put to the side. So I, I want to just from your perspective, I, you know, you have to sort of step back and say for corporations that want to try to look at how they can diversify through equity and inclusion, you know, I mean, I think that's important. I, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody. The point I make, I guess, is now I'm talking to somebody who is on the recipient side of that. So not the, 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 the management side, but they're on the recipient side. Is there a better way for people like in your instance, if you could sort of go back into the way back machine and sort of say, wow, what a great opportunity. And now you arrive at the TD bank and you've got this job that there's that they could have made you feel more welcome rather than, you know, and I'm not saying they didn't, but it's just that, you know, at some point they, you know, they get you there and they sort of say, well, look at what we've done. We're, we're starting to move in this direction, but then kind of over to you, Rebecca Chartrand, to try to survive in that sort of environment, which is new to you. Is there some experiences you could share to say, you know, in the future, this is kind of what would be, make it more easier for people to be in that inclusive environment? I think employers also have to look at their state of readiness in receiving Indigenous peoples because, you know, there's racism. We know that through the Black Lives Matter movement and the 215 is like people are demanding not only diversity, equity and inclusion, but justice. And so for me, justice is about data. It's ensuring, again, that people have these safe and equitable opportunities for employment or whatever it is. But um, I think readiness is important. And so I think the employers need to look at the question of, are we ready to receive this? Are we ready to support these employment equity opportunities? Because it's not just about hiring people, but you need to look at the bias that exists, you know, amongst staff. You need to look at the institution itself, because when we look at things from an anti-racism lens, our institutions, our larger institutions weren't designed for people like me to succeed. You know, and if we look at post-secondary education, for example, there's a good example for, right? We had residential schools that were created, you know, as part of the, the segregation that we experienced as First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. So we have to look at, you know, the status quo and who is the system working for and why. And so it's not just the systems itself, but it's all of the social dynamics between people, you know, understanding microaggression and where that comes from, you know, the prejudice. And so I think there's a, there's a need to do a lot of work around that in terms of, um, you know, where people are at individually and then collectively as, you know, an organization or a business in the ways in which they're about to receive people. So there needs to be some cultural awareness and thank goodness we've arrived at this place of anti-racism. You know, we've, when we look historically at the work we've done, we started with multicultural 
ism, right? And then multicultural education, you know, because things were so diverse. So we've done a great job and Winnipeg's fantastic for it. You know, we have Folklorama and then people said, okay, that's not enough, you know? So, okay, let's do diversity, equity, inclusion. Let's take it a step further. But we really have hung our hat on gender equity with the DEI work. And we never really got into talking about race or racism, and so now we've arrived at, you know, looking at things from an anti-racism lens. And, you know, to me, it's all about data and accountability. You know, it's like, okay, how do we know we're actually moving the needle? How do we know, like, you know, people are actually doing well in these spaces? It's not just about hiring people, but it's looking at both qualitative and quantitative data to, to see how we are moving the needle. But part of it almost be, would be is, I mean, I'm looking at your particular business now, I mean, indigenous strategy that you're running, that they would necessarily, an organization say, look, we need to get more diverse equity and, 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 and bring in inclusivity into our organization before we hire person one. You know, I'm not, this isn't a pitch, by the way, for your company, Rebecca, but what they really would do is to sort of engage you and your organization and say, how do we? get ready to make sure that when we start bringing people that are um, that we're trying to bring in on the on the diversity and the equity piece, how can we make sure that day one, they feel as if they belong here, that this is a training opportunity for them, that there's an advancement opportunity for them, you know, in ways that probably weren't there when you first started. And again, I'm not trying to throw any shade against TD Bank, you know, as a matter of fact, give them some credit for doing what they did. But I'm sure that, they, you know, yeah, no, no, good. Okay, no, perfect. And 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 thank you for that. But just the point is that you you arrive there, and you know, at some juncture, what's the orientation like for somebody that has not necessarily been part of their employment opportunity? I don't think there was anything different. You know, I I was being treated as everybody else, and at that time, you know. I think people just thought, well, that's the way we need to approach things. Is like we treat everybody the same. We don't see color. But I think that's where, again, some work has to be done because when we think about hiring practices and our biases, we end up hiring people that look like us, right? That talk like us, that behave like us. And so I think, you know, from an HR perspective, that's where diversity and equity policy is is really important just because we have to find ways to kind of recognize our bias and, and look outside the norms. So I think that's one way to look at it. I think you need data. You need to understand like what is the makeup of your diversity now. And so the trend is to collect census-like data in the workplace, which I think is a really good starting point. And then to understand, well, what is the makeup of who we are and who are we representing? So the education system is a good example. You know, I built an anti-racism policy for Seven Oaks School Division, and we conducted a census type of survey with all of the staff in the division. And it was fantastic. We had like a 75% return in terms of, you know, staff filling out. And then how did that impact the division? Well, you know, we realized, okay, well, if we have, if this is our student makeup, then maybe our staff should reflect that. And so there's been several hires of moving, you know, educators up to admin role role positions to help reflect, you know, um, the student body and the community in which they're representing. So those are um, some important things, data, really holding up the mirror, looking at yourself and going like, okay, who are we and where do we, where do we need to do some work here? 
And, you know, it's really important to ask people of color, so Indigenous, Black people of color, like, what is your experience like in this workplace now? How can we make it better? How can, and if you have none, then why don't we have none? And so I think another good example of that for me is with the cab companies. You know, there's, we know that there's huge tensions between the Indigenous communities, some of the cab companies, but when you also look at the diversity of the cab companies, we recently met with the cab companies and some of the anecdotal information that we collected is because, you know, we're trying to bridge build and bring these two communities together and say, how do we work better together so people feel that they're getting a service and they also feel safe and respected. And then, you know, recognizing that the cab companies are a local business and, you know, we want them to do well. Too. So it's it's having these very frank and sometimes very uncomfortable conversations about, you know, what the reality is. And so one of the realities is that the cab companies don't have a lot of Indigenous people working for them. They, in their own words, they maybe had about 10 out of 2,000. Well, there's a good number that we can work with, right? It's like, okay, you have 10 people. How do we get it up to, you know, 10%, 15%? We start creating benchmarks. But we also need training. And I think that training is really about anti-Indigenous racism training. Understand like where some of this bias or these attitudes might come from that create like these tensions between, you know, this particular community and the Indigenous community. And so, so that's a good example of where we could, you know, look at race relations and we could look at, you know, the data, the demographics, you know, to create like a, a clear plan in terms of, well, how do we move reconciliation forward? How do we ensure that, you know, people feel safe, at, you know, when they're accessing a certain service and, you know, and bias, there's bias on all sides. Bias just doesn't go one way. So I think we need to kind of dig in and, and look at these, these things in a very holistic way. For sure. And so, Rebecca, just talking about, you know, the issue for Indigenous peoples and the cab companies, as you mentioned, who took the leadership on that to start that process to make that go? How did that how did that develop? Because, you know, there's so many times that we need to look at models that work, some that might not work, but that's okay. We adjust. But did you would you say this is a model that worked? And if so, can you just talk a bit about the leadership on it? There was a group of women in the community that had come together to talk about incidents, some specific incidents that were actually in the media in terms of safety issues. You know, some Indigenous women not feeling safe when they were riding in Winnipeg cab companies. And so that's why Quay Rides was created. It was Indigenous women creating safe rides for Indigenous women. And so... As part of a reconciliation effort, I know that both Duffy's and Unicity Taxi were really trying to bridge, you know, how do we, how do we make this work, right? How do we, how do we work together here? And so, you know, I was invited to one of the meetings. I know there's another group of women that were kind of managing that. And we were asked Indigenous strategy. We were asked to come in and perhaps create a, help create a strategy in terms of where do we go next? Well, my recommendation after sitting, you know, for two hours and kind of hearing what, you know, what the cab companies had in mind and, and the conversations that were had prior to my arrival was, you know, I had questions and my questions were, okay, so what's the plan to date? And I know that the cab companies were looking at hiring, you know, maybe 15 Indigenous people as, as a starting point, uh, Indigenous women to employ them in the cab company this way, you know, there might be a way to 
you know, get the woman to pick up other women, you know, and in my mind, I was like, okay, well, that's a start. And so, you know, it, it, when you're at, when I'm asking questions, it's like, okay, how many people do you have employed now? Well, if you have 2000 staff, how many, what's the percentage of indigenous people? And so, you know, if you're saying that you have 10 indigenous people, not 10%, but 10, then we have a long ways to go with 15, hiring 15 indigenous people would just be a start. Then I think you need to look at policy, you need to look at training, and you need to understand the biases that people are coming with. And what was interesting in that conversation too, and I really appreciate the the honesty that some people do come, you know, from other countries with biases towards Indigenous people, and especially Indigenous women. And and we don't know, like, I don't know exactly what transpired in these situations. You know, it was enough to cause media to pick it up. And it was enough to cause Indigenous women to say, hey, we're going to create our own safe rides. So this is an example of a point of tension. And it is of around race because Indigenous women who experienced, you know, some issues around safety in, in, their, in their rides are saying there's a problem here. And the cab companies did not, you know, they didn't deny it. They said, you know, yes, like any other workplace, we do have some bad apples and we need to do some training. You know, and I've worked in education for years. Like I've had colleagues who've immigrated here and who've said, I hate to say it, but, you know, in these quote unquote, these Canada schools that help prepare us to come to Canada, you know, we're taught before we even get here to stay away, like from Indigenous peoples, the Indians, right? And you'll be okay. And so it makes it really difficult for Indigenous peoples to, to be in spaces where we feel completely safe and supported in under these types of conditions. Because what we end up getting or seeing as a result of this bias is prejudice and microaggression and the inability for Indigenous people to feel that they're you know, maybe being welcomed or a part of a workplace. And my own experience at working at TD Bank, being hired under employment equity, for example, I couldn't make any friends. And I was like, is it just me? Or like, what is this? But I felt it on a day-to-day basis. And I actually left there crying a couple of times going like, what is this? You know, is it me? My colleague, three months into my job, she was a French woman from Quebec. And I love her and I and I, I wish I could reconnect with her because what she said to me in the lunchroom one day really made a huge difference in my experience there moving forward. She sits down beside me and she said, you're not so bad. And so I looked over at her and I'm like, oh, well, you're not so bad too. And then she goes, well, you know, she goes, I just have to tell you, some of us before you arrived here, you know, we were upset. Some of us had gone to human resources because you were getting hired full time. And if things have been like a little rough around here, it's because people were really unhappy with you getting this job. And and she was a French woman from Quebec. And, you know, she started talking about her experience saying, you know, like, I understand what you're going through. You know, like the French have really come through a lot of like, um, you know, discrimination and and things like that as well. And at the time, I I wasn't making the connection to what she was talking about, but she was seeing what was unfolding and she felt like I needed an ally. And so from that day forward, I, I had a friend, I had an ally. I had somebody who was like checking in on me. Hey, how you doing? Somebody who was joining me for lunch. And uh, it made all the difference moving forward. Yeah. I bet. 
I bet. And, and, you know, and I appreciate you sharing that, Rebecca, because again, that really kind of comes full circle to the notion about, you know, how welcomed are you or how ready are the organizations when they bring people in? It's not a matter of sort of saying, we've hired you, here you go, lots of luck, hope it works out. And you're sitting there saying, what's, what's up with that? You know, like, gee, I, that's not kind of what I was expecting. So, so let, let me just kind of come back, Rebecca, to something that you talked about. There's the Ojibwe Bilingual School that opened in 2016, the first of its kind in Manitoba. So you have two tracks at that school, or what was developed is, is two tracks at that school, one in English or one in Ojibwe programming. Was there a particular reason that that school or that school division was chosen? Maybe talk us through that, because again, that's a big, big move. Well, I was recruited for the position that I held in Seven Oaks School Division um, by Brian O'Leary, which I truly appreciate to this day. And I was working at Winnipeg School Division as their divisional Aboriginal education consultant. And so Seven Oaks was looking to enhance their Indigenous education initiatives, and I was invited to come in. My first step was just to, you know, do an assessment of the division and, and get a sense of like, okay, what are the initiatives happening now? So I, I took the time to visit each of the schools, the principals, documenting, here's all these initiatives that are happening. And then, of course, looking up against that larger backdrop, right? Like, how did we arrive at Aboriginal education, like what is it we're trying to achieve with it, right? So looking at the national backdrop from a First Nations lens, an Aboriginal education lens, things that we're doing provincially. And so we ended up creating a path, which was more of like, you know, we um, did some visioning in terms of what we wanted to do. And so lots of like stakeholder engagement, students, parents, educators, you know, trustees, the superintendents, the administrators, just really coming together and trying to create opportunity for people to talk and to dream together and to say, well, these are our needs. Here's the challenges. Here's the aspirations. So we created a vision. And in that vision, one of the things was to create our own school where we could practice culture and language. And language was at the heart of it. And Elder Mary Shane, who is the elder in residence there, the language piece was really important to her. And she, you know, she kept stressing it. And and we all did. And we wanted to all support that. And, you know, because Mary is a residential school survivor. You know, from that, I created a, a policy for Seven Oaks School Division. And there were seven areas of focus. You know, one was, um, you know, supports for students, supports for staff, parent and community engagement, curriculum and resources. And then the last one was language. We wanted to help revitalize language. And so we did that in a number of ways. We did it by, um, you know, I had applied for grants for to create some Ojibwe summer camps. And then we created programming throughout the year to try and bring families together to learn a lot about language, not just students, but families. And so that was that was such a, an amazing experience because it was really not only about building like trying to revitalize language, but we were building community and we were building it with families. There was monies that was available through Canadian Heritage, through the National Indian Brotherhood Trust Fund. We had addressed all of the other policy areas, but this was the last big piece. And it was like, okay, I think it's time to, to start applying because the opportunities were there presenting themselves. And of course, with Brian, under Brian O'Leary's leadership, you know, Brian is been a huge supporter of like all these initiatives and which is why I think Seven Oaks is a real leader in Indigenous education because, you know, Seven Oaks was always willing to push the envelope with 
and for the Indigenous community and to let people like myself lead that. So I felt hugely like empowered to help move things forward that the community wanted. It was such a privilege, you know, just access funding to work with the trustees, to work with the superintendents to say, okay, how are we going to make this work? There were a couple of schools that we were looking at. We wanted this school because it was newer. It was formerly a French bilingual school, but they had a new school that was opening up and that French bilingual program was moving down the street to the new school. And so it only made sense to maybe use this school to support the Ojibwe bilingual program. You know, again, the dual track program where you can register for the English route or the Ojibwe route. It opened up in 2016 from kindergarten to grade three. We also advocated for busing. So if you live anywhere in the division, you can get free busing to and from the school, which I think is a huge win. I think what's also interesting about the school is that we had a high number of kids in care, meaning 63% of the kids that enrolled in the program when it first opened up, 63% were children that were living in foster homes and predominantly with non-Indigenous families. I'd have to say predominantly with the Filipino community. Some of the data that I collected at the time was that we had children from seven different DFS agencies, some from the North, and Indigenous language would have been their first language, right? Either Ojibwe or, or Cree. And so it was really important, you know, from that perspective for me to reach out to those CFS agencies, you know, because it was the CFS agents that had to make the decision to, you know, because they were the legal guardian to get to move their child, uh, these children into the program. And so part of the extra leg work that I had done was reached out. I made a list of all of the kids identifying which CFS agency they're working with. I'd send a letter, I'd call, I'd say, hey, we have five of your kids in this school and we need to work together to support the children. Because what I realized in working in the division, like Seven Oaks had the second highest number of kids in care, second to Winnipeg School Division. And this, again, was based on all the data that I was pulling together. I think we had about 800 kids in the division in 2016 that, you know, were kids in care. When you think about trying to revitalize language, it's really important to recognize, like, where the children were at and where all the supports and resources were, because it's hard to learn language if you don't hear people speaking it, right? You can, you can learn all the technical parts of it, like how to read and write in Ojibwe using the double vowel system. But if you don't hear people interacting and talking with each other, then it's really hard to learn. And I'm a good example of that, right? My dad speaks, but I don't hear conversation and he's always trying to teach us words. Part of that was like, how do we get more supports? And so, you know, after the the late work with the CFS agencies, we were able to hire two elders with the funds that they were providing on a part-time basis. But, you know, it was done through a community based approach because, you know, you had monies from families and monies from education. At the time, it just, it was a bit challenging to kind of get these supports, these financial supports to come together. But I'm glad to, I'm glad to say that, you know, that's changing now, but we were able to secure two elders. The elders came in, they were providing support and that was so needed for these kids, especially those that were in care because these kids were coming to school with trauma trauma in the sense that, you know, they've been taken out of their homes, away from their moms and dads, their communities. They're living with non-Indigenous families. They're not hearing the language. And then finally, they arrive at a school where they have like 
indigenous teachers and they have a couple of elders who are there as well and they're hearing the language and all the other kids are indigenous too and for some of our kids it was exactly what they needed you know i just remember one of the kids like would grab onto one of the staff members legs and didn't want to go home and why because they found a sense of community they found a space that was nurturing them that felt safe and nurturing and familiar to them. And so it's not only, you know, about trying to revitalize languages, it's about trying to revitalize communities because it's with the communities and the family and the community where you're going to learn and revitalize language. Yeah. Yeah. So Rebecca, a couple of things, I, you know, because we are talking about, uh, you know, the end of March, March 31st is indigenous languages. They were talking about language, the importance of it. When you looked at Seven Oaks School Division and you wanted to sort of get into that indigenous languages piece, two questions. One is, how did you decide, say, for example, on Ojibwe, number one? And number two is, are there that many or how would you find the resources and the teachers that could allow the K to, was it K to three, kindergarten with grade three, that to be able to sort of learn and teach that? Because again, that's a whole other resource that I think would be uh, you know, challenging at this point? Oh, absolutely. So we hired three First Nations teachers from three different communities. So I have to tell you, there was so much work in deciding which dialect we were going to be using in the school. So that alone was a huge hurdle to work through and to come up with a like um, agreements on, okay, well, this is how we're going to spell the word book. This is how we're going to spell the word school using this double vowel system, because like we're in the midst of not only like revitalizing languages and oral language, we're also in the process of like also engineering these, this way of how we're going to teach the language within a public school system that uses, you know, the Roman orthography, right? So there were all of these different challenges to work through. So one of the things we did was we correct, we collected a hundred words, most common words that we're going to use in the school system to communicate to the kids on a day-to-day basis, came up with some agreements on how we're going to spell those words in terms of dialect. And then one of the projects I did as well, shortly after I left Seven Oaks School Division, was I created these 15 Ojibwe bilingual books, and I, I put the link in, in, the, in our chat. So they're free. And so I, I had secured funds from Canadian Heritage to write these 15 Ojibwe bilingual books because we had no resources in the school to teach the language. You know, the teachers were working double duty because not only are we setting up a new program, but they're creating all of the resources, you know, little booklets to help kids to take some things home and learn. So the 15 books that I created were all of the, the words that the kids would be using in the, in the school. So commands like to sit, to stand, to have a drink of water, you know, uh, to read a book. So that was a, a support to the program. I think people need to understand that, you know, we're not just trying to revitalize, get speakers speaking, but we're also in the state of like writing, actually writing the resources and creating them as we go along. And so the reason why we chose to teach Ojibwe is because when you look at the province of Manitoba, the majority of Ojibwe speaking communities, Anishinaabemowin speaking communities, are in the southern part of Manitoba. And so the Cree-speaking communities are in the north. 
And so when we did a survey to community, we asked, would you enroll your child in an Ojibwe program or a Cree program? And an overwhelming amount of response was for the Ojibwe. And, you know, we I think we had 4% at the time that said they wanted Cree. And the plan was to incorporate Cree at some point. The program has grown, so it goes to grade six now. So it's kindergarten to grade six, not grade five. A grade level is added each year. And so, um, so far, so good. But, it, you know, it is difficult hiring language speakers because to hire somebody who is who has a B.E.D. and a language to teach, it's almost like they're a unicorn. And so you have teachers who are teaching now and learning the language as we go along, which is why, you know, when I was recruited to work at Red River College, you know, I was actually looking to take a, a, a leave from, from working nine to five and, and maybe doing my own thing. So that's actually when I launched my company was in 2017. But then I was recruited from Red River College. And I was like, well, I, you know, I kind of want to take a break and do some other things right now. But when I took the interview, so I, I agreed to take an interview. And then I was like, oh, I got really excited because they're like, well, there's all these programs and we need someone to review them and we need new programs. And I'm like, The language program was one of them that I was so interested in because working, you know, to get this uh, Ojibwe bilingual school up and running, I already knew what the gaps were. We needed resources. We needed teachers. We needed to help educators learn how to teach the language using this double vowel system and to find a way to learn it, being surrounded or immersed in with fluent language speakers. And so Again, that program was built, um, you know, to help teach the double vowel system and help people who wanted to teach it, learn how to teach it in that way. So in that sense, I feel really good about that work and the progression in terms of how, how it's grown. Yeah. So I have to ask you, can you explain the double vowel system? Yeah. So we're using the, what would be called like Roman orthography, which is like the alphabets. And so that familiarity, I think is is good for students because they're already familiar with it. But the double vowel system is like they combine two vowels to make a different sound so that it doesn't line up exactly with the English language. But I think the double vowel gives you an indicator that it's making a different sound, right? So an I, I, for example, you know, it doesn't make the sound I or I, it makes the sound E. And so when you see an E by itself, again, you're, you're seeing, you're recognizing something familiar from the alphabets, but it's making a different sound. So an E by itself would make the sound of A. So it's not something that I created, but um, I know that, you know, the people that were leading in our province in terms of revitalizing the languages like Wanda Barker, for example. So these are the two like go-to like language gurus in our province. And, you know, these are the systems that they were using, right? And so they had done so much work, you know, meeting within Anishinaabe territory. And so our territories extend into Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Minnesota, North Dakota. And so they had spent, you know, a number of years like, okay, all of these people are grassroots and trying to figure out how do we revitalize the language. And they agreed on this double vowel system. What do I do? I don't want to reinvent the wheel. We just kind of keep building on what they're doing. And so it seems to be coming a long ways. You know, both Pat and Wanda are still teaching every chance that they can get both in community and through school systems. So 
Yeah, amazing. So, so Rebecca, a couple of things just to sort of touch on, and I'm not sure when you and I talked uh, earlier, you know, there was some conversation about languages with respect to post-secondary. And I just wanted to maybe touch on that for a second. And the other piece I wanted to make reference to was that under the 94 recommendations that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was the, I think, the calls to actions 13 to 17, which dealt around language. And so is that something that is being discussed or are you aware of some of the progress there? And do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I was also involved for a number of years with the work of the Indigenous Education Directorate here in Manitoba. Some of the work with post-secondary is coming together to discuss, you know, how do we revitalize language at the post-secondary level? And so when I created that certificate program, it's like 10 courses to me, I just saw that as a jumping off point. Okay, so what does a diploma program look like? How do we create like a BA program that's very focused on, you know, having language as a teachable as opposed to some extracurricular courses to help you get a degree? And so the Indigenous Education Directorate was spearheading that. And I know they've been talking about it for, you know, a few years. So I'm hoping that they're close to creating their program that um, basically focuses on language, languages at the post-secondary level. And I think that's one way to go about it. But, you know, if you talk to Pat Ning once, for example, Pat will always say, you know, like, you don't need the education system to teach the language. We don't, we don't necessarily you don't need to go that route. We can teach through community. We can teach through grassroots. We can teach through our language camps and, you know, just setting up opportunities for to speak and to, to engage um, with each other. So it's more of like a relational way of learning and a community-based way of learning. But I think it's important for us to, you know, take the best of both worlds, right? We you know, like not everybody is going to have access to fluent language speakers or to community, but they will have access, you know, to post-secondary courses where, you know, we want to ensure that we're creating, you know, these courses where people can feel that they that they can learn the language in that way too. One might work, a combination of them might work for some people over others, because you, you know, we have to recognize that people learn in different ways. And I think on that note, we need to find a number of different strategies or ways in which we can pass the language on. Yeah. And I, you know, going to ask you on that note, Rebecca, we talked at the very beginning of this conversation about how you were interested in the arts and some of the things you had done through, through working on stage and developing basically a show, I guess, that talked about racism. And, you know, you use the stage and you use the performing arts to use that as an educating tool. Would you see that becoming an opportunity from a language perspective? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you go to the Windham Hotel on Madison, it's a new hotel. If you go to the washroom or you you just walk around the building, you'll see that the words are written in Ojibwe and also syllabics, you know. And so to me, like walking in that building and seeing that, I was like, wow, I felt such pride. I was like, there's our language. And that's the way that we have to um, help revitalize our languages. We need to see it. We need to see it all over the place. It's just everywhere. And, and so then people will become familiar with it and they'll be more inclined to want to use the language because they're seeing it all the time. That's a huge part of, you know, when you look at TRC and the fallouts of that is like, we've been erased. We've been erased, like we're still trying to see ourselves as part of this modern landscape. 
And so I think that's why addressing, you know, language through an anti-racism lens is really important. Let's set some targets. What's the data tell us now? How are we moving things along? Without accountability, we're not going to, yeah, we're not going to know whether we're having an impact. Yeah. So Rebecca, Clayton Sandy, who's a good friend of mine, we had breakfast at the, uh, at that hotel and we walked around and I saw the other language, but I'm not sure that out of my ignorance that I would have known that that was Ojibwe. Yeah. Well, and see, that's the thing. Like you would have to understand whether it was or not. And there's a lot of similarities between, you know, Ojibwe and Cree, but then there's also some difference. Win, for example, which means, you know, walking a good life. It's very similar in both. There might be a slight dialect difference, but it both in both in Ojibwe and Cree, it means, you know, to walk in a beautiful way or a good way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So Rebecca, the last thing I just want to, we're going to do a little bit of a, a different twist here for a second, because I know that you have taken boxing in your, as a younger woman, and you're still young by the way, but tell me about what, what got you involved in boxing? What, what, what do you take away from that? And then as you think about that answer, the last question I would just have is for those people listening, what can those listeners do to help advance indigenous languages uh, in society? What can we do? But kick off with the boxing for a second. I used to box quite a bit before I had my son. He's nine. For me, I think I needed that level of intensity because I'm a change maker. So, you know, I've been recruited for, you know, my last four positions, but in, in those positions, like you have to realize that there's so much going on all at the same time. And at the core of it is like, you're wanting to build and maintain good relationships, but because I'm coming in and asking questions that are offsetting sometimes, like asking people for data, for example, you know, like what is the data telling us, um, you know, especially when you're wanting to do strategic planning. So I think just always managing those relationships, including some of the microaggressions, because, you know, I am an Indigenous woman who is coming in wanting to create change because, you know, we're saying the status quo isn't working. So positions that are being created for Indigenous people within these institutions, well, they're automatically coming in as change makers. And it's important to realize that, you know, here's, you're going to deal with those microaggressions and you may have support or not in those spaces. It's great if you do, but there's, you know, I don't think people can fully understand, you know, sometimes the level of, of what that might be. And so for me, recognizing that my role is to educate and to help kind of move initiatives along and, you know, my work isn't about me. It's about, you know, being a voice and a presence for other people. And that is usually Indigenous youth, whether it's K-12 or post-secondary, because that's where I've worked. And so that's always been my driving force is keeping that in, fo in focus that I need to create change. I need to create these opportunities, you know, for all these young people who are coming up behind me so that, you know, they have a stronger foundation and they have those spaces that are that are there um, to support them. And that's not always easy work. I mean, it is, it's great. It's fulfilling work. You meet great people along the way, but there's such a high level of intensity and in having to kind of manage and maneuver some of that stuff, right? Those race relations, sometimes the microaggressions or even the lateral violence. So for me, boxing helped, you know, me manage just working through my feelings and kind of letting things go. It's like a complete escape. I don't think yoga would have cut it because... <laughs> 
I, I do yoga too, but yoga is much more like relaxing, free flowing, you know, balancing and centering yourself. So I think with the intensity of the work that I was doing, that was the perfect outlet for me. And I joined a boxing program where at the end of it, it was called the fight club. At the end of it, you know, you're committing to boxing. So I got into the ring. I had two fights. I I won my first and I lost my second. It was something that I wanted to do. So I was able to, you know, check that off my bucket list. And I just started boxing again the last couple of years. After I had my son, I had a hernia and it finally got fixed. So, so I'm feeling great. I'm loving it. I encourage other people to check it out. Yeah, no, interesting. So uh, Rebecca, you're going to teach me one thing before we say goodbye. You said that the Ojibwe and Cree for, you say, walking a... In a good way. Walk, walking the good road. Yeah. Okay. What 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 is it? T- teach me that phrase, please. Yeah. So it's mino. Mino. Pematisiwen. Pematisiwen. Mino. And then it's pit, P-I, ma, M-A, pimati, T-I, si, S-I, W-I-N. Pematisiwen. Pematisiwen. Okay. Yeah. But if people are wanting to learn the language, I would recommend that the first thing they do is like they learn to say the indigenous people's like um, the terms that are used by indigenous people to define themselves. So we use words like Ojibwe and Cree. Those aren't the words that we actually use to define who we are as a people. We're Anishinaabe. We're in, we're the Anishinaabe and we speak Anishinaabemowin, which is the language is the language of our people. We are not Cree people. We are Ininu or Ininiwa people, right? So so I think those are important, especially when you're doing land acknowledgements, it's getting those languages right. But then also thinking about how to introduce yourself using the language. So we're very much about relationships when we introduce ourselves and knowing your lineage. And so that's why when we introduce ourselves, we say, you know, so you would say Stuart Murray, Dishnikas. Stuart Murray is my nickname. And then you might say the name of your clan. And your clan is usually like your last name, right? Nindunji. So Nindunji means my clan. So for me, it's white wolf. So so I say, you know, Wapanunikwa Indigenous Indigenous. So the clan, Wabashke Maingan. So Maingan is like the wolf. And Dudem is my clan, meaning those are my people. And then, or you can say where you're from as well. So I said, Pine Creek, Bogard, Nindunji, that's where I'm from. So I think that would be a really good way for people to learn the language is to just build on that, is how do I introduce myself in Anishinaabe, in my clan, where I'm from, and then, you know, in acknowledging the people, the original people of this, these territories. Yeah, well... Rebecca Chartrand, you are a change maker. Thank you so much for spending some time teaching me, allowing me to uh, to have a conversation with you. It's been uh, wonderful, and I just want to thank you for your time and and thank you for all you continue to do to work with languages to try to make this uh, community, this uh, city, this province, this country a better place. So, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, and keep up the great work. I love what you're doing as well. All right, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. 
A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.